Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. My whole purpose in doing this was to make sure that we were hearing voices that were often unheard of. We also wanted to explore what it meant to take out the whiteness in, in being mixed. And so our kids get the what are you. That's part of this process is like trying to get people to understand that that's a really inappropriate question to ask and why does it matter. From A Decibel Media, I'm Megan Rumler and you're listening to A Decibel Voices a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. For anyone in the film industry or for those that enjoy going to film festivals as cinema enthusiasts, then you know we're in prime festival season. Although the New York and Chicago film festivals have just finished, both the South Asian and Tokyo International Film Festivals are currently taking place this week. Our guest today is documentary filmmaker and award-winning photographer Lena Jaiswell. Lena's films have been broadcast throughout the country on over 100 PBS affiliates through National Educational Telecommunications Association and through New Day Films. And her work features deep expertise and interest in issues that intersect race, representation, and identity. Lena is currently co-directing and co-producing a feature-length documentary titled Mixed with Katie Borum-Chatou. Mixed is a film that explores both the meaning and experiences of being mixed race in America 50 years after the historic 1967 Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court decision that made interracial marriages legal in the United States. Lena Jaiswell, welcome to A Decibel Voices. Thank you for having me. You know, before we explore how you became an award-winning photographer and documentarian, I'd love to know more about your upbringing. I was born in England, and uh, we were we moved around a little bit when I was younger. We we were in England, and then Canada, and then eventually landed in the United States. My dad was a doctor; he's now retired, and he wanted um, to live in the United States. So we took a little bit of a journey to get to Ohio, where we landed. And I grew up mostly in Ohio until um, college. And then I moved to D.C. and have been here pretty much ever since. You know, you mentioned that um, your family immigrated from India and then to England and then to Canada and finally settled in a small town in in Ohio called Medina? Medina. Medina. Yeah, Medina, near Akron, Cleveland area. Mm-hmm. And um, we were one of the first immigrant families to to be there, to move to the town, to the small town. It was pretty interesting. You know, you didn't, we were sort of sometimes this sort of experiment that people would look at and say, oh, they're so different than from what we are. And and so that that had brought on some challenges. You know, people ask me where my green card was and things like that when I was six or seven years old, like taking the bus, you know, walking home from the bus. Overall, it was a really pretty friendly um, community and great upbringing. What kind of doctor uh, was your father? He was a cardiologist. So, yeah. So he, um, again, was one of the first immigrant doctors in the community and then um, created a great practice. And there wasn't a place where we could go in Ohio, even today, where people don't stop him and say, hey, you took care of my so-and-so or you, Dr. Jaswal, you, my my mother was your patient or something, you know, so he had a big impact on a small community. 
So then as you reflect on your childhood, having lived in England and seeing what that was like, I don't, even though it, you were pretty, probably very young, but then in Canada and then finally in America, do you remember kind of what impression that might have left on you? Like everybody else who's growing up and having experiences being teenagers, you sort of want to assimilate to whatever culture is right there. And so I do remember kind of pushing back a little bit on the Indian identity just because being a teenager, right? You know, you just want to be with whatever you see is the is in front of you. And um, so it was only until until I got to college that I started to really explore and think about what it meant to be Indian and um, what it means to have this identity as an Asian American. I want to stay in your childhood sure. a bit um, and talk about when the idea of being a photographer kind of first came into your world. Sure. So I um, was very lucky that I had two parents that were extremely supportive of all of the um, sort of choices that my my two sisters and I made. Um, they never pushed us into becoming sort of the stereotypical Asian immigrant kids. We didn't have to take like dance classes or go watch the Bollywood movies or any, you know, they really let it. They said, we brought you here, so you have to learn the best of both worlds. And so they never pushed us into becoming like engineers or doctors or, you know, lawyers or any of those kinds of things. And they really wanted us to be what we wanted to do. Um, and so one of my sisters is a teacher and the other one ironically works for the Cleveland. She's a COO of the Cleveland Film Commission, Greater Cleveland Film Commission. And then and then there's me, um, who's a artist, photographer, filmmaker, professor. We had a lot of encouragement from day one from our parents to explore what it was that we wanted to do. My dad was an amateur photographer, and he used to carry, well, we actually used to, he used to make us carry his camera bag all around. And I loved just the heaviness of the camera and playing with the knobs and everything. And so I, I kind of grew fascinated with the camera pretty early. By third grade, I knew I wanted to be a photographer. And so then my mom just put me in after school classes or the weekend classes in learning how to make a pinhole camera and taking images and doing that. And um, for my 16th birthday, they bought me my first real single lens reflex camera. And so they've been nothing but supportive of, of this career, even though they knew nobody in it or couldn't help me in it or any of that stuff. But they've been nothing but encouraging which is unfortunately is not the situation for other Asian kids that I know um, that, were, that are around my age. So I'm very grateful for having the parents that I have. I like that you described kind of the, the heaviness of the bag and um, the weight of it. And it had, it sounds like a, a significance in, in a way. Do you remember what kind of camera it was? Sure. He always shot with Nikons. That has fallen on me as well. Like I traditionally only mostly shoot with Nikons. He just gave me, he had uh, one of the first Leicas that was um, produced in India. And it, so he kept it and he gave it to me and I just got it cleaned and fixed up. And so now I have that camera. It's a film camera and I haven't shot anything exciting yet with it, but it's, um, it's waiting for me to, to use. Was a Nikon what you got at age 16 when you first? Yeah, came? my Nikon 2020. Yeah, nice. was the first camera. Yeah. So what do you remember shooting with it? Well, you know, um, at that time, I joined the yearbook and the newspaper and in our high school. And even in junior high before that, I had like an Instamatic camera that I would just shoot parties and friends and things like that. Um, or would just always document stuff. And for a long time, it was a way for me to sort of hide, but then also participate in culture. And so I could be actively somewhere where everybody else was, but I had this thing to protect me. Mm -hmm. 
so I could look through it and it gave me a job of some sort, you know, to be able to protect myself and hide myself from there, but actually learn about what American culture is. Through the lens of a camera. Through the lens of a camera, but also, you know, not participating fully, but being a part of that scene, you know, so. And so the process that you're describing, did you realize at the time that that was? Oh, no. No, no, no. I wish I was that smart. <laughs> but no, absolutely not. It's only a, upon past reflection of being like, why why does the camera interest me so much? And what did it give me? And like, what did it allow me agency for and access to? And so much of that, I don't know if I would have had access to if I didn't, if I wasn't on the yearbook or if I wasn't on the newspaper. I was a very social person. I had a lot of friends that, from different cliques. And I think that also helped. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. After high school, you landed in the Washington, D.C. area uh, for both undergraduate and graduate school. Graduate school was in, yeah, in Maryland, in, in uh, Baltimore. In yeah. Baltimore, yeah. So, so yeah. you received a B.A. in visual media and anthropology from American University, yeah. which, full disclaimer, is my alma mater to Go Eagles. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> and an MFA <laughs> in photography from the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. Explain to me why visual media and anthropology so um, I knew, again, like I said, I knew in third grade I wanted to be a photographer. And um, at that time, my parents wouldn't let us live in New York City. New York City was very dangerous when I was getting ready to go to school, so they wouldn't allow us to move to New York. And I got a scholarship to American. I came to American, and I studied, um, at the time, what it was called was visual media, but with a concentration in photography. And my first semester there, I took an anthropology class that just blew me away, and I loved it. And I was like, well, this really makes a lot of sense for me as a, somebody who wants to document things. I should be able to understand and articulate the best practices of studying other cultures. And so for me, it made perfect sense to do this combination of a major, double majors. I don't know if this is a good segue or not, but, you know, thinking about what it's like to to be a person in the creative industry as a female uh, a while back. I came across this study that says, you know, the racial breakdown of artists in America who earn their primary income by working in the arts is, is only 3.9% for, for Asian people. It's Washington Post article. I know that article so well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so in the context yeah. of, and that's a recent study. That's a recent study. Which means, you know, I guess the question is, well, what were the percentages before? What was it like for you being a female in the creative industry um, and not only a female but a person of color? Sure. So I was very lucky that um, the professors that were role models to me and that are mentors still to me were mostly female and, and or people of color. I had one professor, um, Ann Zelly, who just really took me under her wing. I'm not still quite sure what she saw, but she like said, you're, you know, I'm going to help you. And she did absolutely that. And I, the only reason I'm sitting even here talking to you today is because of her. I owe everything to her. And she really actually even was like, you should think about teaching. Have you ever thought about teaching? Because I think you'd be a natural for it. She helped me get my position at AU. It's her, when she retired, I stepped into her shoes. I was very lucky and fortunate to have women and people of color kind of along the way the entire time in college. That's not the case of the industry, right? That's changing. It's getting better. But I never kind of thought of myself as that identity, though. You know, I just was like, I'm going to be a photographer. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm just going to do it. So I didn't really look at it through the lens of being a woman or a 
person of color. I was just like, this is what my goal is, and this is what I'm going to do. So I never thought about it like back then. Now, of course, I have, because now I know the statistics, and I know how hard it is. Yeah. And I also have met friends who, um, who have very similar trajectories like mine, but had mostly male professors. And you know, they sort of saw how the field was and decided that that's not what was best for them. If I had that experience, I probably would have decided that photography might not have been the way, route for me. So how did you segue then from photography into film? When I got to graduate school, I was thinking about um, doing a thesis project. And I had taken some film classes as part of my visual media degree, but I didn't like it. I didn't, and I wasn't very good at it. And, um, and I was like, oh, I just have to take this for the requirement, and then I can just go on to doing photo stills. But then I got to college and I had this idea for my thesis to do a film on arranged marriages. And so I basically was self-taught. I just picked up the camera and figured it out, read the manual, and then um, made lots and lots of mistakes, uh, recorded things without audio. Great, <laughs> I've done great that before. footage to use, you know, uh, and then had to go back and re-record or just had the camera mic on. And, and, you know, everybody was like, can't just have the camera mic on. I was like, why? The camera mic is picking it up. It's fine, you know. <laughs> but then going to edit and you're like, oh, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> you need the camera. You need an external mic. Um, so making lots of mistakes, which I'm grateful for because, again, like that's part of the learning process. And once you make that mistake once, you don't do it again. And so then I just kind of had kind of decided to do this thesis in video and learned how to make a short film shooting on big old beta SB tapes and, you know, oh, so wow. long ago. So, wow. Like, yeah. So I want to go back to something you said. You said you didn't like film when you took a couple of courses. What was it that you didn't like? Um, I love the still image and I love being in the dark room having um, nobody else there and nobody can get to you. You're just concentrating on your work in a day and age that's so busy now, like it just allows you to breathe and stop. And so for me, film was a uh, moving image didn't give that same excitement to me as the still being in the darkroom does. I think it's actually harder. Photography is harder than the moving image because the moving image in film, you have audio, you have narration, you have people guiding you along the way to telling you the story. And in photography, it's one frame. And you've got one frame to communicate your message. So I think it's a little bit more of a challenge than it is sometimes in film. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with documentary filmmaker and award-winning photographer Lena Jaiswal. Lena's work has been featured in critical film festivals and newspapers for the Indian diaspora. Her award-winning photography has been nationally recognized in galleries around the country, and she was given the prestigious Gracie Allen Award for Outstanding Documentary in Short Format from American Women in Radio and Television. Lena, let's talk about your new documentary, Mixed. Can you tell us about the film? Sure. So it is a journey film of two moms, one brown, one white, um, going across America in search of what it means uh, to be mixed race. Um, my film partner, Katie Borum Chateau, is white and I am Indian. And the two of us travel around. We have kids that are of mixed race and we travel around and we talk to pop culture icons. We talk to authors, psychologists and families that look like ours and, and young people in search of how to be better parents when we're thinking about our kids' identities and 
uh, what those stories that we don't really hear but now are starting to hear in the media to share with our kids. So what did you discover? So we've learned a lot about ourselves and we've learned a lot about how to parent our kids. We've learned things like they may not um, identify in the way that we want them to identify and that their identities might change over the course of time. So when they're young, they might identify with one race and when they get older, they might identify with the other or they might identify as being mixed the entire time. And we have learned that if we input our own decisions on them of like, no, you have to be this, you're this, you're this, that we're actually doing real harm to them in their identity formation. And so we want to we want to protect that and we want to be able to give them space to explore their different identities and realize that whatever they come up with is is best for them. And also within in the same family, if you have siblings, like one sibling might identify one way and the other might identify another. And that's perfectly all right. I mean, what was kind of the genesis of, you know, why is this important to make and document? Sure. So at the time, over a little bit over five years ago, I had made a video art installation called I'm Not the Nanny. So when my son was born, I was playing with him in the park and a woman came up to me and we live in D.C. and predominantly the nannies are women and women of color. And uh, my son has light skin. And she looked over, this woman looked over at me, and she was like, oh, you're so good with him. Who do you work for? And I was like, American University. Like, I just <laughs> didn't even get it, right? You know, I just, it didn't clue into me. Why are you asking me? Because, yeah. again, my, my armor was off, right? I was hanging out at the park playing with my son, so I didn't have my, like, shield protecting of, you know, of against racist comments and, um, <laughs> or anti-women anti comments at that, too. Um, and I just was like, what? You know, what? no, no, I... I'm a professor. I work at American University, and she's like, "Oh, I thought you were. The, I thought you were the nanny." And and this was how long ago? Um, gosh, she's ten now. So that was at least over nine years ago. Yeah, probably nine years ago. About nine years ago. And uh, and then it happened repeatedly. You know, there were times when we would be in Chipotle, and we just the two of us just would be sit sitting around and having a conversation and joking around and laughing. And you know, somebody would be like, "Oh, you know," again, ask like, "Oh, you're such a great nanny," or something. You know, things like that. And so I had done this um, one minute video installation piece on uh, on that being like, "I'm not the nanny," and also this idea of having a, a mixed race kid and how sometimes in your own home community you're also looked down upon for not having like another Indian kid. I mean, I've had people from the Indian community tell me, oh, you should have another child, one that looks more like you. And, you know, those kinds of comments like that they think are appropriate and okay. And uh, so it goes both ways. It's not just, you know, it's not just one-sided through there. And so I just did this little piece about that. And Professor Katie Borum Chatu heard about it. And, I, and she and I work together, but we work, we teach in the same school of communication, but we teach in different programs. So I didn't really know her work or know her before. And she stopped me in the hallway and she was like, these are my kids and showed me a picture of her kids. And I was, and I said, now the really inappropriate comment of they don't look like you. And, um, <laughs> and now I know through this journey, that's not appropriate to, to, to say. And she's like, I know they don't. And then I knew she had a background in documentaries and I had done documentaries before that as well. And so she's like, let's just grab lunch and talk. And um, I remember us sitting and talking and she said, you know, I'd really like to make a feature documentary, but I don't want to do this on my own. And as a white woman on my own, doing a documentary on race, you know, especially mixed race. And I was like, wow, she's already thinking about it that way. And I was like, really appreciative of her mm -hmm. um, consciousness of, of, of those kinds of issues. And I was and I was like, yeah, let's do this. And so the more we talked about it, um, the more we actually realized 
just how much on the same page we were. And that has never waved. Like we have been, in my opinion, and I hope that she would say the same, an excellent team throughout this process. We have really formed a, a strong bond and friendship of our own. And uh, as we've, you know, sort of journeyed through this and questioned our own ways of, of bringing up our children and, um, and being really vulnerable, which is, which is hard to do. The first year we weren't in the film, so it was just a traditional sort of documentary that the two of us would be, we were producing and then we were interviewing people. About a year in, everybody we knew was asking us, like, why are you making this film? Well, because of our kids. Well, how do we know that? You know, where, where's your perspective on it? And yeah. so at, from her beloved people and from my beloved people, we came to the table one day and I, I was like, I think, and she's like, I think we need to be in the film. I was like, I think we need to be in the film. And so <laughs> we call ourselves reluctant characters because we didn't anticipate that. We were, you know, we had thought about doing this in a little bit more of a traditional documentary sense. And then we realized, like, actually the hook would be parents trying to, you know, trying to learn because we don't know what it means to be mixed race. We're, I'm not. I'm monoracial. She's monoracial. How can we speak to the mixed race experience? We can only speak speak from one side of that equation as a parent. And so it made better sense for us to be the ones going through the journey and then giving mixed race people their own voices as we meet them and come across them rather than us kind of saying, this is what it means to be mixed race as producers on the outside. As you figured out, you, you know, you're, you're reluctant characters yeah. and, and now you're, you're part of the story. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? Was there anything surprising that you weren't expecting to learn? It's so interesting about how bias is formed and how within all of us, we have unconscious and bias. And even when we were producing the stories, it was really interesting that Katie would reach out um, to the white characters and I would be reaching out to the people of color. And we didn't even realize that we, those were not active choices that we were making. But hmm. I think something subconsciously told us, like, that, you know, Katie, if you're talking about race, who wants to talk about race, first of all? Nobody. And, uh, <laughs> and then if you're a white person, you know, it's very scary nowadays. If somebody takes a clip and edits you out and does all these things, it could be really damaging to you, right? And as a person of color, you're always having to be the person to talk about race and explain race. And so, again, like from both sides of the coin, you can understand reluctancy and wanting to be in a film talking about mixed and of course mixed race in the United States has a legacy tied to slavery. So again, nothing that we shy away from in the film, but again, not things that people are like, let's go talk about this. <laughs> like, I want to be a part of this, right? So um, it's a tough subject. It's a tough subject, and we didn't actually realize like how tough it was until um, until we started. Yeah. And especially like looking for funding for the film has been has been a challenge because people didn't want to touch it because of the legacy with with race, um, because of the fact that I'm not black and it's not a black and white issue, but that my role as, as an Asian woman also has stopped us from receiving funding uh, because they would have loved the black and white story. Right? How fascinating. So there have been a lot of things that have kind of come up and that I've already experienced. So they're not a, it's not such a surprise to me, but I think and sometimes Katie was surprised at like just how, not that she doesn't know these things exist, yeah. but just like how actually it affected. That so interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, that actually cues up a nec- another question that I was uh, curious about. And that is, you know, when we think about the portrayal of mixed race families in mass media, I feel like we're still kind of new at it. Yeah. So when we started, the only real portrayal of, of 
of interracial couples was like through Shonda Rhimes, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, like all mm-hmm. the sexy kind of, you know, nothing really family oriented. I mean, we had Modern Family and then we had Parenthood. So we had some some shows that were starting to show that. But if you remember in 2013, there was a Cheerios commercial. Of oh, a, I remember of a, that one. Yeah. Of a mixed race family. And the ad got such backlash in the comments on YouTube that General Mills had to turn them off. They were so vile and vicious. And in 2013, in 2013, so not so long ago. And then we also followed up another story. There was a, a glossy and you'll see this in the film. There's this glossy magazine in Houston called Houstonia and you know, something that you would pick up at the doctor's office and just kind of lifestyle magazine and you just sort of pick up and skim through. And there was an ad in the magazine that featured a real life mixed race couple with their kids uh, furniture ad or something. I can't even remember um, what it was. And the magazine got calls from two different people saying your magazine's trash and they were like oh what did we write about like what offended something and it wasn't that it was the ad it was the placement of the ad mm. so we went down and interviewed the the editor because he wrote this national it sort of went viral you know this response to his readers saying you know people unsubscribe from us all the time how about if i unsubscribe from you Mm. racist readers not up need not apply you know and so we what year was that lena that was uh, probably three years ago yeah amazing so but but now we're starting to see so there is a t you know um the show blackish the the mom in there is mixed and they're doing a spinoff called mixedish <laughs> that's starting to come out in the fall and we're starting to see some more things around um more family geared oriented oriented stuff and like i would joke like the only thing that actually looked like me like my kid was a cartoon. So half Indian, half white. There was this cartoon on Nickelodeon called Sanjay and Craig where the dad was Indian and the mom was white. But again, they're cartoons. But when it came on, I would, I was like, my son was probably right around that same age for to, to be able to watch it. And I would be like, we have to watch this. That's yeah. you. That looks like you, you know, or somewhere along the line in um, some Star Wars cartoon show, one of the characters, they've taken a lot of names from Indian names. And so he heard his name, Dev, being mentioned as one of the characters. And we were like, oh, my God. You know? So it's changing, but it's it's uh, only until recently that we are starting to see that slow change. So then the families and the uh, the characters in the film, how did you find them? So we looked at the, you know, news articles and things that went viral. And then we um, we interviewed author Matt Johnson, who wrote a graphic novel called Incognito and another novel called Loving Day. And so we contacted him and then we would just so we would just sort of research. We just researched and looked at any article that kind of came up and situations. And then we would find families. We interviewed the first interracial couple and their entire grandchildren and great grandchildren, oh, like wow. everybody in North Carolina. They they were married, the first interracial couple to be married in North Carolina. We interviewed probably my favorite group uh, because it's not just a white and black mix. Like my whole purpose in doing this was to make sure that we were hearing voices that were often unheard of. And so we didn't, we also wanted to explore what it meant to take out the whiteness in in being mixed. And so we um, interviewed this group of young people from Spelman and uh, and in Morehouse colleges called Blasian Narratives. And so they're black and Asian and they do spoken word around what it means to be mixed race with these both these identities. And they were my favorite because they just were so great and they're so performative. To me, it was um, what I could really relate to. And they gave us great advice in terms of like talking to kids about race early, making sure you, you you know, how you how you do it and approach it. And so um, we wanted to make sure that we were not just thinking about it in terms of whiteness, which often happens when we talk about race, but we wanted to make sure to insert the others. 
Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, um, I have some very cute nephews who are, well, they're college bound now. And one of the things and words that they made up, but I didn't realize it was kind of common knowledge, you know, they're half uh, Bolivian and half, well, Vietnamese American. So they call themselves Spasians. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. But apparently it's a thing. And there are, there are lots of other words. You mentioned sure. Blasian. There's yeah. Wasian. Yeah. As these kids, the future generation, as they think about their identity and, you know, you're doing this film and we're seeing more and more things in mass media that portrayed, you know, what real families look like. Why is it important? Why is it relevant? You know, the question that our kids get is, you know, what are you? My generation got, um, where are you from? Right. And I'm like, Ohio. No, no. Where are you from? Because that couldn't I couldn't be from Ohio. Right. And so our kids get the what are you? And that's part of this process is like trying to get people to understand that that's a really inappropriate question to ask and why does it matter? And then for, for our kids to actually have answers to those questions of like, what are you for themselves and the way that they define themselves? So I think it's really important, not just for the mixed race community to see themselves, but I think it's also really important for others to understand what that experience is like, you know, to come up to somebody and touch their hair when it's totally inappropriate or to to you know, follow up or, or being like, you're so exotic. Katie's daughter has, uh, she's got this story about her daughter um, learning about exotic animals. And somebody came up to her, like in school, she was learning about exotic animals. And then somebody came up to her and, and was like, you're so exotic. And she's, without dropping a beat, she just was like, like a zoo animal? Like what, like a zebra, you know? And uh, it, <laughs> like was, that touch. it was awesome, you know? And so these kids have to prepare themselves somehow for these kinds of comments. And we need people to understand that even however well-meaning they are by, by saying you're exotic or you're so beautiful or mixed race, that's going to solve the answers of race in America. Absolutely not. It's not. Absolutely not. It's not. And how can you put that pressure on that one population when we've obviously had issues and problems about race through the entire history of this country, right? So to try and educate people about what that experience is and and so that they won't make it so hard on the next generation and our kids. Well, I can't wait to watch it. How and when can listeners uh, watch it and find sure, it? Sure. We're right now in uh, finishing stages of editing, and then we're looking for color correction and sound mix pretty soon in the next couple of weeks. And we hope to get this film out pretty quickly. You can follow us um, on our Facebook group, the Mixed. just look up Mixed Documentary, and we'll start to post things when they start to screen all over nationally, hopefully, knock on wood. And we'll make sure to embed anything that any information that great. we have right on our in our show notes. You're a really busy person, Lena. Not only are you a filmmaker, but you're also a full-time professor in film and media arts at American University and the director of the new BA in photography, a joint program with Visit the College of Arts and uh, Sciences. Yes. Wearing all these different hats, really being the person that is crafting the story behind the lens, whether it be photography or video, what do you tell students, what do you tell emerging photographers and filmmakers to keep in mind, uh, to keep close to them as they make their way through the industry? I would tell them that their voice is really important. I mean, we need to hear diverse perspectives um, and not just repeated the same things over and over again, and that they're the generation that's going to be active change makers. And so they need to remember what their voice is, they need to know what their voice is, and they need to be able to express it in ways and know it enough to be able to talk to somebody about what it is their projects are. 
we need to foster this next generation because we need to see something different than what we've been seeing for years and years and years. And this is the right time. I do feel that there is, we're in a situation of change, whether it's good or bad, but there's a situation of change happening and occurring. And we need to foster the, the voices of the often unheard. Well, thank you for all your work. We're so happy that we've talked to you. Thank you for coming into the studio today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Lena J. Swell is an award-winning photographer and filmmaker whose new documentary examines biracial identity in today's America. Her new film is called Mixed and is a journey of two moms, one white, one brown, who travel around the country in search of what it means to be mixed-raced 50 years after the historic 1967 Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court decision that made interracial marriages legal in the United States. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L dot com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Be sure to join us next week. In honor of Anti-Slavery Day on October 18th in the United States, we speak with Davina Durgana, an award-winning international human rights statistician. Davina was named to the 2017 Forbes list of top 30 under 30 in science for her work around fighting human trafficking and assessing risk and vulnerability to modern slavery. Be sure to tune in. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.